0: Chapter 4. Rescue Squads My gallbladder was the second non-essential organ I'd lost in the past few years. My appendix went first, and I felt more mortal knowing I was half a lung and a kidney from being in deep shit. The surgery was successful. I felt better immediately and I started to put some weight back on. I wasn't sure how much more I could do for Tattoo the Earth, or if it would even make a difference. Sean, Betsy, and I had dinner, and I asked them what they thought we should do next. And their response was resounding. How should we know? I had been driving the project since the start, with clear vision and purpose, and no one ever doubted my strategy. But I was starting to doubt it, and doubt myself and the idea, and I felt totally alone. When things had started heating up with Cypress Hill, a friend referred me to Stuart Levy, an entertainment attorney in New York City. Stewart represented Queen Latifah and had at one time represented Tupac Shakur. Stewart got a kick out of the Tattoo the Earth concept and for him, the tour was the least interesting thing in the pitch book. It was all the spin-offs that turned him on. I liked Stuart immediately and decided to use him for any agreements I might need with Cyprus and Jack Utzik. He had provided good counsel as I sent out letters of interest to the bands and tried to get a tour off the ground. Now he confirmed for me that Cyprus's agent was playing games and he had concerns about Yudzick and he said I should pull back and regroup. He was impressed I had gotten as far as I had on my own and said he knew someone who could be the final piece in my puzzle. Stewart introduced me to Paul Zukowski a producer of lifestyle-themed tours like Jazz Explosion and Solid Gold Dance Party, and a package of tours like A Walk Down Abbey Road, a tribute to the Beatles featuring Ann Wilson, John Entwistle, and Todd Rundgren. Zukowski had produced the BB King Blues Festival for the previous ten years, and that had made him some serious money. He had a young second wife, two small children, and a huge house in New Jersey. He told me he thought Tattoo the Earth was the best tour idea he'd ever heard. Zukowski had come up the hard way, and climbed and clawed to get his success, and had a decent sized chip on his shoulder. He was ten years older than me, so meeting him was like seeing the ghost of my shoulder chip future. Zukowski could make money off anything. He told me about an early hustle selling lottery tickets at work sites. Rescue squads, he told me, were where the real money was. Zukowski knew about tours. He was the first one who broke it down for me, how the talent is controlled, how each entity makes their money, how you control costs on the road, all of it down to the nitty-gritty. He said the reason Cyprus's agent had bailed on us was because the band wasn't big enough to headline an amphitheater or arena show, and the agent would never put them in a position to have an unsuccessful tour, regardless of the money. He chuckled as I told him my exploits with Azoff, Lyle, and the rest, and in speaking with him I realized that while I had some of the pieces required to bring the tour to life, Zukowski knew which ones were still missing and could put it all together. A festival tour producer puts together a package that includes the bands, crew, staging lights, and sound, travel expenses, touring entourage, etc., and then sells that package to promoters around the country with the producer's profit built in. Plus, there is t-shirt, vendor, and sponsor money. How a producer manages expenses on the road was key to a profitable tour, and that's where Zukowski excelled. We soon had a deal to become partners. He said agents don't even think about next summer's tours until the end of the year, and then after the new year, they jockey around until February, and then announce the summer lineups. Zukowski did business with all major agencies and the plan was to set up meetings in LA with them after Thanksgiving. In the meantime, he would work the phones to see what bands were planning to tour in 2000. He told me I could stop running around like a lunatic and could relax, heal up, and get ready for the LA meetings. But it was hard to sit still. Until I met Zukowski. if I stopped, then Tattoo the Earth stopped. I was the only one driving it. Ideas are fragile things that need to be nurtured and to be constantly pushed forward, even if in the wrong direction. Zukowski was driving now, and though I had faith in his ability to succeed, it was hard to just chill without feeling like the whole thing was dying. I needed to keep busy, so I decided to wag the dog a little and create some buzz for the brand. The vomiting demographic had introduced me to a singer in Huntington Beach named Lauren Boquette. And Lauren and I connected during one of my Cyprus trips. He was the front man in a moderately successful industrial band called Drown and was completely wired into the L.A. hard music scene. He was soon committed to making the project happen, and we came up with some guerrilla marketing to get Tattoo the Earth brand in front of fans. Lauren put together a street crew around the country that distributed our postcards at events. We handed them out at the inaugural Coachella Festival, though we originally wanted a booth and we were told that tattooing didn't jibe with Coachella aesthetic. We sent a street team to a big radio show in Philadelphia and to the Las Vegas Metal Festival. Lauren and his team handed out 50,000 cards at Woodstock 94 and even got called out in Rolling Stone for driving a van right into the rave and tossing out Tattoo the Earth swag. Lauren not only helped build the national street team, he also gave Zukowski and me the latest information on which bands were hot and which ones were about to get hot. He was preparing a list in advance of our L.A. meetings in November and became our biggest cheerleader and advocate. K-Rock, the big rock station at the time in New York City, held an annual event at Jones Beach called the Dysfunctional Family Picnic, and I spent $5,000 for a booth there to promote the tour, plus more to fly Naomi from Jack Utzik's office in from Miami and hire a crew. The night before, we all stayed at a crappy motel that was under construction and didn't see until morning that there were giant dirt piles all around it. Having the crew together for the first time was inspiring, and we took a picture holding a Tattoo the Earth banner in front of one of the dirt piles. This is how new ideas happen, I told them, standing atop the dirt pile. A group of people believe in something and throw themselves fully into it to make it real. All ideas are like that. It's a person like you or me. Ages ago, someone got frustrated because the flat roof on their house kept caving in after it rained and came up with an idea to angle two sections so the rain slid off. There was nothing magical about it. It was born out of a desire to keep their family dry. Our idea is born out of a desire to tattoo the entire fucking earth. And that campaign officially begins today. Once we were set up at Jones Beach, Sean and his partner did a tattoo demonstration. We couldn't get a permit to tattoo the public. We sold some t-shirts and held a raffle for tickets to an undefined NYC show. After setting up, Naomi and I stood looking at the booth and I asked her what she thought. You're having a raffle for tickets to a New York show that doesn't exist, that's part of a tour that barely has any prospects, she replied. I think it's awesome. In addition to building the brand, I also worked on recruiting tattoo artists. Sean and I went to Amsterdam at the end of August to meet with Hank Schiffmacher, a.k.a. Hanky Panky, one of the top tattoo artists in the world and a legendary character. Hank was tickled when I told him how my first tattoo was from his tribal design page in Modern Primitives, though he chastised me for cutting the design out of the book. He had recently retired from his shop and was devoting his time and efforts to the tattoo museum he had recently opened. Hank traveled the world and was one of the key players preserving the history of tattoo and legitimizing it as an art form. A tattoo is like a stamp in a passport, he told me. It lets people know where you've been and gives them an idea of who you are. Hank had tattooed members of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Pearl Jam, and Kurt Cobain, and developed a reputation as a premier rock and roll tattoo artist. He was a historian, raconteur, fine artist, curator, and a bit of a maniac. He and Anthony Kiedis from Red Hot Chili Peppers had taken an infamous trip to Borneo together where they had to be rescued by record company helicopter after their Bornean guides abandoned them because of their prima donna rock star behavior. Hank was a fascinating guy and brilliant and there was no topic on which he wasn't erudite and engaging. His passion was his museum which was filled with a lifetime of collecting tattoo artifacts and culture He told me that the museum's website was getting more hits than Anne Frank. He tattooed a tribal piece on my upper back that took about 45 minutes and said he liked the Tattoo the Earth concept and agreed to be a part of it. The night I got back from Amsterdam, I went to a show at CBGB in New York City, ending up getting wasted drunk and did cocaine for the first time in 14 years. And though I had a good time roaring into the night, the next day I felt cadaverous, my organs moaning and creaking, like plumbing in an old house. I wasn't sure if I would survive the drive back to Massachusetts. I stopped at a rest stop to get Advil, Tums, and a Yoohoo and go to the bathroom. I was peeing at a urinal when I became 96% sure that I'd shitted myself. It felt like all matter in my body had deposited itself in my pants. It was crowded, every urinal was occupied, and all the doors on the stalls were closed. I stood in the middle of the bathroom and prayed for death. I was so tired and plumb out of ideas. I thought I was going to start crying. Then I felt somebody touch my arm and looked to my right and saw a kid, maybe seven years old, holding the hand of his brother who was a few years younger. Go in that one, he said motioning toward one of the stalls that had a door ajar. Our eyes locked, and his were prenaturally deep and wise, Buddha-like, and he nodded in motion to the stall again. I thanked him, bowing with clasped hands, and went in and cleaned myself up. The encounter reminded me that I was on a mystical journey, and I needed to keep my eyes open because the messenger could be anyone and could appear anywhere. The encounter should have reminded me that I was a fucking addict with hepatitis C, and I had just done coke, of all things, and drunk myself into a stupor. I'd given up coke after being a speed freak in my teens, and alcohol had never been my thing, and I was surprised I'd done both to excess. My health aside, I was pushing the boundaries of my addiction, though I never felt like I was in danger of being addicted to anything. I knew when I'd kicked my last heroin habit, cold turkey, in 1987 that I would never shoot heroin again, but I never thought I would not use again. Ten clean years later, sitting in a car outside Memorial Sloan Kettering, as one of my oldest friends was dying, I'd smoked a joint with her husband and another friend. Both had been cleaner than me. I could make excuses that I was in pain and anxious about my family and business. But the reality is I wanted to smoke a joint, and I did. And once the initial shock and guilt wore off, I loved being stoned. I'd miss smoking pot just about every day I was clean and sober, and it made me feel like I was normal again. It was all fine at first, but then I started drinking and dabbled with some Percocets after a dental procedure. The other two friends I relapsed with went back to an active heroin addiction. One of them died not long ago of liver failure. But I never felt like that was even a possibility for me. I smoked pot from morning to night, and combined with antidepressants it made me feel balanced. But now I had done coke, and shit myself in a rest stop, and I knew I had pushed myself too far. I was racked with anxiety about Tattoo the Earth. But worse was that Betsy's mother wasn't doing well, and it was becoming a possibility that she might not make it. It made everything feel hopeless, and I was full of rage and resentment. Betsy and I needed to get away, so we took a three-week cross-country trip to Yellowstone. For the first time since I'd started Tattoo the Earth, I actually turned it off for a while. And we both had a great time, a legendary time. And we marveled at all the shit we had been through, and that we were still good together. Just the two of us with no distractions. We planned a trip to New Orleans for Halloween weekend. We thought it might become an annual tradition. Then I got into an argument outside the airport during our changeover in Memphis, said something stupid to the wrong person, and got myself arrested. I was taken from the airport to a police station in Memphis that was crowded with newly hauled-in reprobates, and by late afternoon it was clear I was staying overnight. And that, since it was Friday, I'd most likely be there until Monday. Every part of the police station had people sleeping in it, and I rolled up my leather jacket as a pillow and slept in a hallway. I heard horror stories about how long it could take to get processed. One guy had been there a week, and I started to freak. Just before dawn, I saw the two clerks who worked in the office getting ready to finish up their shift, and I walked over to them. "'Hey, guys,' I said, leaning on the desk." How much will it take to get me out of here right now? They looked at each other and paused for a moment. Five hundred, one of them said. Two fifty each. Done, I said slapping the desk. Let's get the fuck out of here. Fifteen minutes later, the three of us walked out of the jail, drove to a bank machine, and I gave them their money. I also gave them Tattoo the Earth postcards and told them to contact me if we did a Memphis show, and I'd hook them up with passes. I had also given cards to all the prisoners. While I was in jail, Betsy was sitting in a shitty motel working with our lawyer to get me out. She was pissed and refused to get on another plane with me to go home, so we rented a car and drove back to Massachusetts. I felt terrible. I joked that she'd known I was crazy before she married me, but she wasn't laughing. She was stressed about her mother. Betsy was the oldest of four kids and had a sister who was still in high school. Her father died at 42 when she was in college, and the family had barely recovered from that. She and I had been through so much together, and she knew I'd be there for her mother, but I could tell she was losing patience with my insanity. But she lightened up as we drove. I bought her a license plate at a truck stop that said, ''My next husband will be normal.'' and took a picture of her, with it looking forlorn and forgiving at the camera. Now that I was out of jail, I was able to find a lawyer in Mississippi who made the whole thing go away. I never even had to go back for a court date. And now it was time to stay put in Massachusetts and prepare for the agent meetings. Zukowski and I were going to be in L.A. for five days, the first two hanging out and getting in sync, the last three in non-stop meetings with agents. We took some long drives and he showed me the house in the Hollywood Hills he'd been living in during the 1994 earthquake. Our first meeting was with a smaller agency that had some decent punk and hardcore bands. But Zukoski told me we weren't just buying talent. We were looking for an agent to represent the tour and that this agent wasn't big enough to do it. I set this first meeting so we can get comfortable selling together and to give you an idea of what to expect, he told me. This agent, the first thing he's going to tell us is why it won't work. Why is he saying that? Because it wasn't his idea. Agents don't get many ideas, and they're resentful when someone else shows up with one, let alone a great one. At that first meeting, after some pleasantries, the agent took some time to look through the pitch book. I like the idea, he began, but let me tell you why it won't work. We met with a few other smaller agencies, but we were there primarily to meet with CAA and William Morris, and of the two, Zukowski had his sights on CAA. The biggest agency in the world, CAA represented Ozzy Osbourne's annual tour, Ozfest and Warp Tour, the annual punk rock tour, and Zukowski felt they would be the best agency for us. Zukowski had been buying blues, jazz, and oldies artists for his tours from the agent we were meeting with for years, and they had developed a good relationship. Zukowski thought the agent would see this tour as a way to broaden his roster and his profile within the agency. As we sat in the CAA lobby waiting for someone to bring us up, I couldn't stop staring at the biggest Roy Lichtenstein painting I'd ever seen up close. These folks aren't messing around. Zukowski said when he noticed I was paying attention to the painting and not him. The agent got the concept. He sat there twirling his eyebrows as he read the pitch book and came to the realization that Zukowski hoped he would have. We talked about what bands would anchor the tour, and the agent said Green Day should do it. He took us immediately down the hall through a maze of offices to meet Green Day's agent, who loved the idea, and started talking about time frames when Green Day might be available and what other groups might work with the show. Zukoski and I were terrific together, and I gave my best pitch yet. At one point, I pretended to be using a jackhammer bouncing around the floor to demonstrate our goal of literally tattooing the earth. Back in the first agent's office, he told us that our tour was exactly what he had been looking for, and that he would call us in a few days to generate a deal memo. Zukowski and I stood on the sidewalk outside the building, looking at each other like we'd seen a ghost, or had been deposited into an alternate reality. Did that just happen? I asked him. I think it did, he replied. It's not supposed to happen like that, but sometimes it does and it just did. I thought about the past year since I'd met with Irving Azoff i have been to over 150 shows all over the U.S. and Europe, stayed 200 nights in hotels, flown 50,000 miles, and invested a lot of money. I lost an organ, got busted, and now here I was with Zukowski, and the meeting I always imagined would happen had just actually happened. We stood there stunned for a while, and the rest of the meetings were a blur. William Morris expressed interest, but Zukowski was focused on reeling in CAA. A few days after we returned, they called and told us we'd have a deal memo within 24 hours. And then, we heard nothing. For days, then for a week, Zukowski worked the phones to find out what was going wrong. He spoke to the agent, but they were stalling us. It seemed that when the subject of Tattoo the Earth was brought up at a staff meeting, the agents for OzFest and Warp Tour were dead set against it. They were already fighting for talent and another summer tour would weaken the existing ones. The Lollapalooza Festival in the 90s had opened the floodgates and there were an increasing number of lifestyle festivals competing for fans and talent. Warp Tour had been founded in 1995 by Kevin Lyman and could feature up to 50 punk and pop bands in alternative venues. It had a low budget, planks of wood laid out between two open trucks would serve as a stage, big sponsors, skater sensibility, and it had become a launching pad for up-and-coming bands. Ozfest, the metal tour created by Sharon Osbourne, Ozzy Osbourne's wife, was then in its infancy and took place in more traditional venues anchored by Ozzy and sometimes Black Sabbath. When Kevin Lyman and Sharon Osbourne found out about Tattoo the Earth, which could siphon bands off from both tours, they let their voices be heard. We were put on the back burner. We told the agent at CAA it didn't need to be a summer tour, and that we could do a winter arena tour, but we were met with silence. Zukowski wasn't happy. Though there was a small chance we might still have a deal with CAA once OzFest and Warp Tour finalized their lineups, Zukowski didn't want scraps, and he didn't like getting dicked around. We met with Lauren Boquette, our guerrilla marketing guru, while we were in L.A., and Lauren told us that we should go after Slipknot, who were tearing up the metal world, and whose debut album had just gone platinum. Lauren thought the first tour should be renegade with the hottest, hardest new bands, he thought a huge band like Metallica or the Chili Peppers, though incredible to have headline, wouldn't allow us to establish our brand and that we would get swallowed up. We could soften and mainstream the tour in the future if we wanted to, but the first year should be dangerous and feel uncertain, like the future. He believed Slipknot was the band that could make that happen. A few weeks into CAA's silent treatment, Zukowski set up a meeting with the agency group in New York. Zukowski had a long history of buying talent from them and was close to the managing director. Most importantly, they represented Slipknot, and we were meeting with them with one band in mind.